Alice is devoted to her work. She goes in early. She stays late. She goes on every course she can. She's working hard to get promotion and move up the career ladder. And if you ask her what she does in life, there's no doubt how she'll answer. She'll tell you all about her career. It's her identity. It's her way of making her life significant and fulfilled. That's Alice. Aaron dreads the Monday morning alarm. And he drags himself like a snail to work. And he spends the work watching the clock, counting down the hours, and then he's off out as quick as he can. He needs to work to pay the bills and have food to eat, but that's all work is, really, to him. It's an annoying, boring necessity that gets in the way of time enjoying himself. Now, which are you more like, Alice or Aaron? And if they're at two ends of the spectrum, where on that spectrum do you lie? Which one are you nearer to, Alice or Aaron? Are either of them right? Are either of them completely wrong? Well, this morning we're considering work. And if, as you heard of those two work examples, you thought, well, actually, neither of them applied to me because I'm not in work, we're considering work broadly. Not just paid employment, work in the home, voluntary work, the work of just everyday chores, any sort of work. And we're considering work because we've got to Genesis 2, verse 15. Let's turn to that now. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And read that verse. Right at the start of your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We're in a series going through Genesis 1 to 3. Well, we might not stop at the end of chapter 3, I'm not sure yet. Uh, But Genesis means origins, and it's a book of origins. We've heard about the origin of the world, we've heard about the origin of mankind, and now we have the origin of work. But we're going to hear about more than just the origin of work, so we're going to move beyond Genesis 2. We're not just going to be in Genesis 2 this morning. I want to give us four things that we need to take in about work if we're going to have a right attitude and a right approach to it. They are work is good, work is cursed, work is a way to serve God, and work has a better future. So first of all, work is good. Now, work crops up in various places in Genesis 1 to 3. There are various places where we could have stopped off to consider it. We could leave it till later in chapter 3 where we get more detail, but I thought we wouldn't for this reason. We're considering work now in chapter 2 to emphasise the origin of work is not as a punishment inflicted on us for sin. The origin of work is not working to put right what went wrong when mankind rebelled against God. The origin of work is a gift and role from God when everything was good. Verse 15 is at the time when everything was good. Nothing has gone wrong yet. And it says God took the man and put him in the garden to work it. But it isn't just the gift from God. 
It's more than that. It's part of being the image of God. Now, chapter 2, verse 15, it says, he put this man in the garden to work it and to take care of it, and that is clearly part of doing chapter 1, verse 28. If you have a look at chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, it's not just the man, it's the man and the woman. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Roll over the fish of the sea and everything. Now, being put in the garden to work it and take care of it is clearly part of that verse 28. They were all to, the man and the woman were to rule over and subdue and care for the world. And that is part of being the image of God. Just look back at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and so on. It's part of being made in the image of God. Now, that's not surprising, as we are to reflect God, and God works. In Genesis 1, he works. That's what Genesis 1 is describing. Until you get to the very end, well, until you get to chapter 2 and you find him resting. In all of chapter 1, he's working. And we are made in his image, and so we are to be workers. But we can add a bit more detail. It's not just generally he works, but we work, and we work. What was God's work like in Genesis 1? Well, the most obvious thing is his work was creative. He designed and made. And so we work creatively. We design and make in a whole variety of ways. A large part of Genesis 1 is God filling and ordering. He fills the sea with fish. He fills the air with birds. He fills the land with animals and plants. And he orders it. He separates out day from night. He separates out land from sea. He separates out the waters above the skies from the waters below the skies. He he fills and he orders. And so we are to do similar. Verse 28 God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. We are to work to fill the earth, to bring out its potential. that God had put in it, latent but not yet brought out. And subdue it, make it orderly. How else is our work like God's? Well, God has a working week. Did you know God had a working week? There it is in Genesis 1. He worked six days and he rested one day. And then he said, and that's a pattern for us. Work six days, rest one day. I hope you follow the pattern. What else do we know about God's work? What did he do after each stage of his work? Well, he looked at it and he evaluated it. We keep on reading, and God saw that it was good. Don't we tend to do similar? From the child doing show and tell at school. Ever thought that that could be a bit like Genesis 1? We like to show and tell and evaluate what we've done. To end of year appraisal at work, do you have one of them? To sitting back in your lounge and looking at how you've just tidied and cleaned it and you feel rather satisfied with it. That's not a bad thing. God looked and he evaluated his work. So, we have been made in his image to be those who work like him. 
What's the point of hearing this? Well, the point is to tell us work is good. Work is part of God's plan before anything went wrong. Work is part of being the image of God, so don't be like Aaron, in my example. Work is good. And that means we must avoid undervaluing work in the way that you sometimes get in churches. You sometimes get the idea it's only what goes on in church, or it's only if you're telling the gospel to an unbeliever that matters. In fact, I heard a preacher say, you can, you've got a choice. You can either give your life to telling people the gospel, or you can go and earn money to finance other people telling the gospel. Well, it sounds good, but it's, that's reductionist. That is a false idea of spirituality. Genesis 1 and 2 says... God is interested in our daily work. And so we must also avoid an undervaluing of work that you can get in society. You can get it in this way, the the attitude, work is just a nuisance. Work is something just to put up with between holidays. When I was a teacher, I was amazed there were other teachers who, as soon as the term started, they were counting down the days to the holidays. Now, even if you're a teacher... Holidays are not quite the majority of the time. You're just counting your life away. Work is not just a nuisance to be put up with between holidays. Another way our society undervalues work is the way it ranks work, by status. And so some just don't get valued. Which pleases God more? Getting a so-called graduate job or stacking shelves at Tesco? Which pleases God more, being a musician producing rich new hymns or being a mother bringing up a child? I don't think you can say one pleases God more than the other. They are all good. And whichever one God has given to you, stick with it and do it in a way that pleases him. Work is good. But, second thing about work... Work is cursed. Work is cursed. Now, when I was little, I heard a song. uh, This is ages ago. I don't know what the date was. And the song went like this. I won't sing it to you. It went, it's just another manic Monday. I wish it was Sunday. And there's something like that being my fun day. And I, do you know it, some of you? It must have been early 1980s, I think. It's just another manic Monday. I wish it was Sunday. And in my ignorance as a little child, I thought, wow, they must be good Christians. Because they wish it was Sunday. They value going to church and keeping God's day holy. And all those things that were imposed on me as a child and I found very difficult. Of course, I didn't realise that it's just the attitude of many people, isn't it? Manic Monday. Lots of people have reason to not like Mondays. And there's good reason for this. We'll find it in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, verse 17 to 19. So mankind has rebelled. Mankind has said, we'll do without God. And God isn't passive. He has has reacted. Verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Where do you work? Where do you work? For some of you it's your home, for some it's an office, for some it's a lorry, or a factory, or a building site, or a school, or a university. Where do you work? Wherever it is, it is cursed. Well, that sounds a bit blunt and shocking, but it's true. We've rebelled against God, and God has not been passive about that. This world is under a curse, and we work in it. And that affects work. And we can see some details here of how it affects work. Verse 17, it makes work painful toil. Painful toil. I once worked in a refrigerated warehouse. Lorries would turn up and boxes of yogurts would be offloaded. And we had to unstack them, stick labels on them, and then stack them up in a slightly different way, and then wrap them with cling film. And every so often, these big units that made the place cold would start up in a terrible din and make you freezing cold. Now, I can't claim it was particularly painful, but it was boring toil. And that's what work is like for an awful lot of people. Toil. What else is it like? Frustrated. Verse 18. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You tidy the house, and what's happened within a day? It's all messed up again. You work hard to secure funding for a research project and someone else in the department lets you down and all your work's gone out of the window. It gets, in so many ways, work is frustrated. What else is it like? Hard. Verse 19. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Now, I know we had that in verse 17, it's hard, but it's worth having it again because it is hard and hard and hard again and again for all of us in some way. And what else is it like? It's brought to an end. Verse 19. Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. You leave it all behind, and who knows what will happen to it then. Now, is this just to depress us? No, it's actually to help us. It is a help to get this note of realism. It's a help to help us not fall for society's unrealistic ideas. Steve Jobs, you know about Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple? He was speaking to graduates at Stanford University and he said, you've got to find what you love. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking, don't settle. That's the common message. You can fulfil your dreams. The the possibilities are limitless. You can be who you want to be. Well, it's nonsense. It's nonsense you might get away with saying at Stanford University. I doubt you'd get away with saying it in Calcutta. But it's nonsense in both places. And Genesis 3 is to help us see through such nonsense, which will in the end make you miserable. This teaching is to help us to have realistic expectations. Don't move from job to job to job because you find each one is difficult. Persevere 
Because you have to expect work to be difficult. And that doesn't mean never change your job. It doesn't mean there's never anything better. But get your expectations right. When so much of work is putting something right that's gone wrong, and then putting it right because it's gone wrong again, and then doing it again, don't think your job's wrong. That's the way it is in a world that has gone wrong. Don't get your expectations from other people's Instagram and Facebook. Get it from Genesis 3, and you'll be happier with more realistic expectations. This is teaching you also, don't pin your identity and your hopes on a career or on business success. It's not your identity. It's not the way to make your life significant. Ecclesiastes is a very good book on this. It's a very hard book, but it's very good on this. Ecclesiastes is all about living in a world under the curse. And it says all we do is a breath. Now, it's the wrong time of year for this, but imagine your breath when you see it on a cold winter's day. And you try and grab it, but you can't. Well, you probably don't. You're not so silly. But if you did, you can't, can you? And you can't keep hold of it. It's just so soon gone. And Ecclesiastes is saying it's the same with our work achievements. It's the same with nearly everything. You can't keep hold of it. It's so soon gone. And then Ecclesiastes says this, Find the good in your toil. It's very much picking up on Genesis language. It's saying it's toil. Expect it to be toil. But then it says, find the good. There is still good in it. What is the good? Let's move on to a third thing about work. So work is good, work is cursed, and work is a way to serve God. Now, It may have started to sound like Aaron, in my example at the beginning, was right. Work is just a grim necessity to put up with. But Ecclesiastes says, no, there is still good to be found in it. We can serve God in our work. So let's move to the New Testament to see some of the ways we can serve God in our work. If you've got a Bible, would you like to turn to Colossians chapter 3? And if you don't know where that is, just have a listen and I'll read it to you. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favouritism. How do you serve God at work? Well, the first thing is do it with integrity. Verse 22 says, you're not to be one thing when people are looking and another when they're not. You're not to be slacking off when the boss is away and then putting on a show to impress him when he's around. You're not to be telling the manager his latest schemes are great and then telling others at break time his latest schemes are rubbish. You are to be people of integrity at work. How do you serve God at work? Do it with diligence. This is verse 23. 
Work at it with all your heart. A lazy Christian is a dishonour to God. And the Bible has severe warnings against lazy Christians. In fact, the Thessalonians were told to throw them out of the church. How do you serve God at work? Do it with the Lord Jesus as your boss. Verse 23 again. As working for the Lord, not for men. With Jesus as your ultimate boss. I met a person who many years ago had been a salesman for Coca-Cola. And he had a mirror at his workplace he was supposed to look in before he went out to do his sales work. And across the top it said, you represent Coca-Cola, would you buy Coca-Cola from this man? And he was to look in it, check he was smart, and off he went. Now, think of yourself. You, fellow Christian, you represent Jesus at work. And imagine you have a mirror. And across the top it says, for you to look at it each morning, would you buy good news from this person? You represent Jesus at work. I love the way it's put. The same thing is put in Titus. I'll just read to you from Titus 2, verses 9 to 10. I love the way it's put here. It says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive? Isn't it attractive enough already? Oh yes it is. But think of it as an attractive diamond. And the attractive diamond could either be, it could be attached to a wire that is tied round the hairy, mud-encrusted finger of a farmer where you can hardly see the diamond, or it could be on a beautiful gold ring on the slender hand of a beautiful woman where you can see it well displayed. Paul says to these slaves, you can be those who display well the teaching about God our Saviour. You can be an attractive setting for the diamond of the gospel. Are you known to be a Christian at your workplace? And does the way you work make Christianity attractive to others? Now notice, who were those verses in Colossians and Titus written to? Did you notice? They were written to slaves. Think of that, written to slaves. So serving God in your work doesn't depend on the status of the work. It doesn't depend on finding the job that's just right for you and uses your abilities to their full and to the best. It's good if you can, but it doesn't depend on that. Most people in history and in the world have never had that opportunity. It doesn't depend on having a choice of jobs or even having an enjoyable job. Although it's good if you can. But it depends on what you do and what your attitude is in whatever your job. Some application of this. I've heard Christians say, what we need is to get Christians into positions of influence, like working in the media and authors and artists. Well, of course, that's great and you can honour God if you're in those positions. But that way of thinking is a misunderstanding of how God works. Because more typical of God is to work through 
the taxi driver speaking to the passengers and the hairdresser speaking to the clients and the person on the factory assembly line whose ungrumbling, reliable work makes the teaching about Jesus attractive. And the mother whose children don't appreciate what she's given up so she can be looking after them, but it's still a Christ-like example even if they don't get it and by God's grace it will be a big influence on them. Or think of it this way. Jesus worked. Now, did Jesus please God by, as a carpenter, winning carpentry awards for his revolutionary roof beams and the window frames he built that changed the face of Galilean housing? No, that's not how he pleased his father. He pleased God by working as an ordinary, obscure carpenter, but with integrity and reliability, and in order to serve God, not self. Now, if you push back against that, now you couldn't be contented with that. You need to make something of yourself. Well, you've just given away. The likely reason is you're working as part of a life of glorifying and serving self, not working as part of a life of glorifying and serving God. Work is good. Remember, it's cursed. But you can still serve God in it. And work has a better future. We've got to keep hold of this. Work has a better future. Now, for seven years, I was a secondary school teacher. And from my experience, I I think it's fair to say this. People go into teaching pretty enthusiastic. In the language of, of Ecclesiastes, they see the good. They find the good. And so they work hard at doing good as a teacher. But often, as they get older, to use the language of Ecclesiastes, they feeling the toil increases. And the emphasis might get more on the toil than on the good. And so what do they start looking forward to? You know, don't you? Especially if they've got a good teacher's pension. Retirement. Retirement. If possible, early. If possible, comfortable. If possible, a retirement where you can avoid all the work and just enjoy yourself. And they might manage to do that for a while. But what comes next? What comes next is maybe a period of infirmity. Maybe even a period of dementia. When you're not able to work. And you need someone else to cook for you. And someone else to sort out your house for you. And we don't like that future, do we? Because we were made to work. And there is a dignity in being able to work. And then what comes next? Death. And we leave behind all that we've worked at. Like a breath, it's gone. And you can't keep hold of it. And what comes next? What's after death for you? Do you know? Are you sure? Is that all you've got to look forward to? We need something more, don't we? We need something better. You need a better future to look forward to than that. But we wouldn't have one. We wouldn't have one if the curse was the end of the Bible. But thank God it's not the end of the Bible, it's at the start. Yes, it runs through the Bible, but in the middle of the Bible we find a man Jesus on a cross. And he's got thorns on his head. What's the significance of thorns on his head? 
Where do you first read about thorns in the Bible? Oh, in Genesis 3. They're the curse. Why are thorns on his head? Because he's taking the curse for us. He's taking our sin on himself. He's taking all it deserves. He's taking all that's wrong with this world. He's taking the curse, and he can, because he's not just a man. He's man and God, and he's taking it to break the curse. So the Bible starts with a curse. In the middle is a man taking the curse, and because of that, and because he's risen again, the Bible ends with he's coming back to remove the curse, to raise his people from the dead, to to a life free of the curse, a life free of that painful toil. Will you be one of those people? Will he be raising you to such a life? Do you know you belong to him? Is your trust in him? And if it is, what then? Well, then you'll play a harp for eternity, sitting on a fluffy cloud. No, no. Let's look at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22. It doesn't end with people on harps playing clouds. Well, I I think it does end with people with harps, actually. They do play harps, but they're not sitting around all the time playing them on fluffy clouds. No, the Bible ends with a very physical future. The Bible ends with the Garden of Eden restored. A new garden city for us to live in with God. Revelation 22, very last chapter of the Bible. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Did you notice that was read to us in Genesis 2? As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Did you notice that was in Genesis 2? Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It's the language of Genesis 1 and 2 to tell us the Lord Jesus will remake this world. And then what? Verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Then we will serve him. Hang on a minute. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says, then we'll rest from our labours. So which is it? Are we going to serve him or are we going to rest? You can't do both, can you? Are you going to serve him or are you going to rest? Yes, you can do both. Because the clue is in verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. We get back to Genesis 2. The dignity and enjoyment of work without the curse. It will be work that is God-like, not work that is painful toil. It will be work that produces what honours God, not work that is frustrating and just like a breath you can't keep hold of. Service that is restful. Now, did you notice when we read those verses written to slaves, did you notice the encouragement they were given to keep going even though their work was hard? And it would be hard all their lives. The encouragement to keep going wasn't promotion, it wasn't better labour laws, it wasn't a comfortable retirement, the, the encouragement was restful service, dignified work when Jesus returns in his new world. So if you're not heavenly minded, if you're not interested in thinking about eternity with Jesus, if you're not really convinced 
that this future with Jesus is what he's going to bring, you don't get the gospel. Because the gospel is so future-oriented. New Testament Christianity has as what keeps us going this future with Jesus. Even for an ordinary day at work. We need this to keep us going. Anything else to keep you going will disappoint and prove unrealistic. So are you like Alice or Aaron? Do you remember them? Are you like Alice or Aaron? Or where in between the two? Or are you like Jesus, working as a carpenter, ordinary, but not ordinary, because he was serving God in it? Are you like those slaves, Christian slaves in the New Testament? Your work may not be high status, it may be difficult, it may seem unending, but Jesus is your boss. And how you work can even make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. So you'll persevere with it. Not because one day your manager might give you a promotion or a comfortable retirement, but because one day your real boss, Jesus, will give you the best promotion. Promoted to glory.